the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Columbine High, Sandy Hook Elementary, Virginia Tech, Mandalay Bay, Las Vegas, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. 1,358 men, women, and children have died over the past several decades in mass shootings here in the United States. In an epidemic of denial, we examine why our schools, places of worship, and business have become what some call war zones, and what, if anything, can be done about it. We are very fortunate to have four guests who have great depth of experience and knowledge in the field that we're going to talk about, and also some very different perspectives. So if I may introduce each of you, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, first, we have Bishop Greg Rickle, who serves the Diocese of Olympia, and uh, that is, of course, of the Episcopal Church of Western Washington. We have Dr. Fred Rivara, a professor of pediatrics and epidemiology at the University of Washington at Seattle Children's Hospital. Paul Kramer served as citizen sponsor of the recently passed Initiative 1639 on gun purchase and ownership, and is also speaking as the parent of a son wounded in the 2016 Mukilteo uh, shootings. And a frequent face, not frequent enough, is Rabbi Daniel Weiner, who serves as the senior rabbi at Temple to Hearst Sinai with campuses in both Seattle and Bellevue. So again, thank you each of you for joining us on this very important topic. I think nothing is as powerful in framing an issue as a personal story, uh, unfortunately one that involves a lot of pain. Late one night in July of 2016, Paul, you received first a phone call and then I think a visit at your house, uh, the kind of visit no parent ever wants to receive. Could you take us back through time and tell me what that visit, what that call was all about? Sure. The phone call actually didn't come through because my phone was on silent that night. In retrospect, that was an error on my part, um, but the phone was on silent. So I missed calls, I missed text messages. The police came to my door at about 2.30 in the morning, um, knocking loud to wake me and my wife up. And um, though the details were very sketchy and limited, they said that my son had been shot and that we needed to go to Harborview Regional Trauma Center to be with him. Um, little else was shared, so we got dressed quickly, drove very fast. Um, I then noticed on my phone that there had been previous contacts, phone uh, text messages and phone calls that I had missed. And so some additional details started to come in. Um, on the way to the hospital, uh, we didn't know uh, what condition he would be in when we got there or if he would even be alive. Once you got to the hospital, uh, you received a little bit more information. You were able to see your son, I believe, and some more pieces of the story began to come together. Uh, what did you discover as you were sitting there at the hospital then, Paul? 
Well, first and foremost, um, it, uh, my son was seriously injured. Mm -hmm. Heavy blood loss from the entry wound, which came in uh, the middle of his back, narrowly missing his spine, um, missing his heart, shattering his uh, shoulder blade, uh, puncturing his left lung, passing through his lung, um, a piece of the bullet coming out of his left shoulder, um, multiple pieces of shrapnel left lodged in tissues in his upper left chest and back. Um, but he was alive and um, the early indications were that he was gonna survive. And so that was a huge relief right mm -hmm. there. What were the circumstances that led to the shooting? My son was at a gathering of young people. Um, my son was 18 at the time in the summer of 2016. Um, he was at a house with um, a bunch of friends that he went to high school with. The rest of them were all 19 years old. And there were 19 people in the house. My son was one of 19. Um, they had all graduated high school a year prior. They'd gone away to university. They were home for the summer. Mm -hmm. um, good kids from good loving families, many of the mostly young men, there were a few young women there, but mostly young uh, men had uh, grown up uh, playing baseball together, uh, soccer together, basketball. They were good friends. Mm -hmm. um, one of the young women who were there was not necessarily part, a strong part of that social group, but had started to develop friendships with some of the people. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, she had an ex-boyfriend, also graduated from the same high school, who wanted to get back together with her. And she didn't want that. Mm -hmm. He, the ex-boyfriend, quickly went from wanting her to hating her, to wanting to kill her and anyone else she was associating with. He had purchased, this all came together over time, um, he had purchased an AR-15 type semi-automatic assault rifle at a local retailer um, in Snohomish County a few days prior to the shooting. And he had been planning the shooting. There was evidence that came out afterwards. He'd been texting uh, one friend in particular, but other, others as well, um, indicating his plans. He had made posts um, to social media uh, that he was planning this shooting to kill his ex-girlfriend, Anna Bowie, and in his own words, texting a friend prior to the shooting, mm -hmm. I'm killing everyone at a huge party. So um, that night, he drove there with his rifle and two 30-round magazines. Um, the police report indicates that he did like a pass around the house, sort of a surveillance um, lap around the place to see where everybody was and what was going on. Mm -hmm. So then, um, my son was outside the house with three of his buddies. So there's 15 young adults in the house mostly in the kitchen area, kitchen dining room area. My son's outside with three of his buddies on the deck. One of them, Jake Long, decides it's 
it's either time for him to go, he was going to go home, because he had talked about that, or there's a possibility that he saw the shooter pass from behind some bushes to this other side of the house and then wondered what the heck was that and went to investigate. One way or the other, he's walking out the yard, he turns a corner and he sees the shooter mm -hmm. who's armed, loaded, and has the rifle pointed right at him. He says, no, no. He turns and starts running away and the shooter just lays <clears throat> into him and puts three bullets in his back. AR-15, rapid shooting rifle. The thing that I think comes to me right now, as you mentioned, there had been posts from the shooter. Uh, had no one that received those posts thought to relay that information to authorities, to other people that might have taken action? No, amongst so many heartbreaking aspects of this event, this story, that's one of them that nobody Nobody checked in with the shooter. Well, it was one friend actually did try to talk him out of it mm -hmm. directly, but then didn't when that, when the shooter indicated that, you know, he was going through with it, that individual did nothing to alert the authorities or parents or, or anyone. Um, you got to check on this kid because he's about to do something really bad. And from the other social media um, posts to Instagram, or Twitter, um, nobody um, notified the authorities about that. Or I appreciate very much your recounting that, which I think the rest of us sitting here just uh, can't even imagine how difficult that is, even from a vantage point of two and a half to almost three years, recounting that. Before we take a look at the larger setting, if you will, uh, that that falls into, how's your son doing now? Thank God he's doing well. He's doing really well. He's shown himself to be incredibly resilient. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really kind of blows my mind that he's doing as well as he is after trauma like that, losing close friends. And um, I mean, it, he was so close to being taken from us to mm -hmm. losing. He was so close to losing his life. Um, but he um, seems to be well adjusted. He's in his senior year at University of Washington doing well. Uh, studying environmental science and resource management. He's sociable. He's happy to be alive, uh, easy to get along with. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Uh, I think the story of your son, Will, uh, is unfortunately not an isolated one, as we all know just by watching the news. Uh, Dr. Rivara, this, I think, speaks to the origin of your interest in the issue of guns, the availability of guns etc., uh, both as a physician and an epidemiologist. Uh, could you expand on how you became interested in this issue at first and how that's evolved? Well, I work at Harborview Medical Center mm -hmm. where Paul's son was taken. And unfortunately, we see gunshot wounds there all the time, both in adults as well as in children. And I became interested in what was going on, what were the reasons that these people were getting shot, both from assaults as well as suicides, and began to do some research that was initially funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with a colleague, Arthur Kellerman, to look at the relationship between ownership of guns in the home and the risk of violent death from homicide to suicide, and did a series of studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which people agree is probably the most 
prestigious scientific journal in the world and showed that having a gun in the home increased the risk of both suicide and homicide. So is it fair to characterize this as an epidemic? 39,000 people in 2017 lost their lives from firearms. 39,000. That's a lot of people. And in the state of Washington, there are more people that die from firearms than die from motor vehicle crashes. And that's been true since 2008. So for 11 years then, more than a decade. Some of the people, and you hear a range of arguments, and we're going to go more into the issues in episode two in terms of what's being done, but some claim either for hunting, uh, but some claim that they want to keep firearms, even an AR-15, for personal safety. Is that really supported by the evidence that you've looked at? Unfortunately, it's not. The most common reason people own guns is, as you mentioned, is for protection. Mm -hmm. But studies have been done here in King County that showed people in a home are much more likely to die from homicide and suicide mm -hmm. than to shoot an intruder. And in fact, the ratio is for every time an intruder is shot, 43 people in a home would die. And the majority of those are from suicide. And I think we, when we talk about firearm violence, I think unfortunately people forget the fact that nationally, 60% of the firearm deaths are suicide. Mm -hmm. And here in the state of Washington, it's about 80% are suicide. Mm. And we need, really need to remember that and think about that as well as the kind of assaults that Paul's son suffered. Mm -hmm. uh, Bishop Rick, uh, Rickle and Rabbi Weiner, uh, we'll talk shortly about your approaches to the issue because you've both been very involved in this issue. But I would ask, what have been your personal experiences with this? Uh, by virtue of your role as a faith leader, you're providing the shoulder for people to... Uh, gain some support, but I would have to believe that internally, uh, while you are providing that shoulder, there are also things going through your head and your heart at the same time. What have your experiences been with that? Well, the Jewish community, unfortunately, has uh, endured some very direct impact mm -hmm. from this. In 2006, the uh, Jewish Federation office was attacked by a uh, a disturbed man wielding guns, and he injured a number of individuals killed one person. Um, within my congregation as well, there was a young man also who was at a similar house party and someone came in with some similar grudge or sense of discontent and, uh, and killed this, uh, this young man um, within uh, my, the larger Jewish community within my congregation. Um, to this very day, uh, most days within the synagogue, we have to have armed guards outside. We've had mm. them for about 20 years, as, has mo as have most congregations, most synagogues around the country mm -hmm. in the aftermath of some high-profile events at the JCC in Los Angeles and some other places. And so in a significant way, it has dramatically impacted not only uh, individuals and families within my community, but really the whole ethos of how uh, we see our community and see our place in the larger community. We certainly don't want our congregations to be fortresses. By the same token, we must do everything we can because there are individuals who have concerns about, uh, about the Jewish community and within this country have very easy access to very powerful weapons mm -hmm. that can do some very significant damage. On a very personal basis, just uh, Paul, listening to your, your comments, um, 
I have an 18-year-old son currently who was on the cusp of going to college, and he goes to all sorts of parties and the kinds of things that we as parents never think about in terms of letting them go out and try to be independent. And it is um, heartbreaking for me. There always is something in the back of my mind that uh, that I really try to tamp down and to and to main and, and to rein in that. Um, that you know, in, in our current society, this could be the last time that I see him. I pray and hope it, it is rare and, um, and 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 unique. But increasingly, it's not. And and I think there are so many parents that I've talked to who, who feel similarly. Bishop Rickle, perhaps uh, your experience with yeah, this. I, I, my personal experience goes back uh, even I, in my earlier vocation was a hospital administrator. So many of those statistics mm -hmm. that you are citing here we've known for a long time and uh, even healthcare in our country uh, we've shown research has shown that that could be one of the greatest issues we could solve is guns and the prevalence of guns and the misuse of guns could do so much even though we concentrate on other things uh, just as the rabbi said our uh, houses of worship now are uh, being affected by this we've had at least in this diocese uh, two instances of suicides where people brought uh, mm -hmm. firearms in onto the property. They didn't uh, shoot other people, but they shot themselves. And um, we are now having um, regular uh, workshops on what to do about an active shooter. I'm sure you're mm -hmm. doing that too. And that's the reality that uh, we mm -hmm. live in now. <clears throat> I think uh, I, I don't give thanks for this, but I, I will uh, admit, I guess, and confess that my um, the abstraction of it was taken away from me uh, after Parkland, uh, the, in the Parkland shooting, um, a very active Episcopalian uh, young woman was murdered there, uh, Carmen Shintrup. Uh, I wear this band with her name on it. Uh, you may remember that was on uh, Ash Wednesday in our tradition and also Valentine's Day. They fell on the same day a year ago. and. Uh, well, the Shintrups have moved from Florida and now live here. And yes. uh, so um, around Ash Wednesday, I spent some time with uh, April, the mother, mm -hmm. uh, because all of that trauma was coming back to her. So it's no longer abstract. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's uh, truer every time. The, the sadness of uh, these events is that there are connections just about every time they happen. I don't think it's really abstract for anybody anymore. I mean, I think we see so much of it, we hear so much of it. And, you know, the, the other kids at the party, the students at Parkland, how does this affect them if it affects them for the rest of their lives? Right, right. And how does it affect medical professionals that are dealing with, if you will, the fallout, the casualties from something like this? I think it's a tremendous issue for them and the medical professionals um, are beginning to really respond. I think the medical um, professionals begin to see this as an important public health problem mm -hmm. and have written about it. And unfortunately, um, the NRA has pushed back against the medical professionals saying, quotes, stay in your lane, mm -hmm. end quote, that we don't really know what we're talking about. But the surgeons who took care of your son at Harborview, that is their lane. Absolutely. Gunshot wounds are their lane. And I think that we realize that we have to do more than just patch people up, make them whole again. Um, we have to try to prevent these incidents from happening in the first place. And since you bring it up that way, I'd say it's our lane too. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've actually had that argument with people who say it's not 
uh, a lane we should be in. I believe it actually is a lane that faith uh, has something to say about and should be in uh, that, the, right in the middle of that lane. And we're going to talk about that in greater detail in episode two. I think back to the 50s and 60s, we used to have duck and cover drills because of the potential right. for nuclear war. Uh, that was a threat imposed from without. Uh, was it inevitable in your views that classrooms, and some have described classrooms, places of worship, places of business, have become war zones. Is that accurate? And was it an, an inevitable outcome of the polarization of society? I, I, I don't think it's really related to the polarization so much as the extreme availability of guns. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've always had a society that's very diverse. Um, we may be more polarized now than we have been for a while. But I don't think that that's really the issue. I really think that the issue comes down to the fact that this young man who shot your son could go to a store and buy an AR-15 with, with, with you know, two magazines or 30 rounds. Um, the, that's the problem. Did he not remark that he was surprised at how easy it was for him to obtain the gun and that volume of ammunition? Afterwards, he did. Well, tell us why he bought an AR-15. He bought an AR-15. He also wrote about how it made him feel so powerful. But it also he bought an AR-15 because he was too young to buy a handgun. That's true. That's true. He was 19 years old. Washington state law, you have to be 21 to buy, in order to buy a handgun. But at 19, he could buy an AR-15. So this 19-year-old couldn't go to leave the store with a handgun, but they left the store with well, an AR-15. Yeah, yeah. So, so big back. Well, Bob, Bob Ferguson is really trying to. No, uh, but we, we've it. changed that yeah, 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 with yeah. the passage of Initiative 1639. Yeah, exactly. We changed that exactly. as of January 1st. Exactly. Um, in Washington State, you have to be 21 in order to buy an AR-15, and the access to guns is is a key piece of the problem. Um, I don't think it's the whole problem. Um, because our society is producing um, angry young men mm -hmm. prone to violence in some way. So I think we need to look at our culture as a whole and how are we showing up for each other? How, how is it that we're, we're producing so many angry young men prone to violence? And what might be done to shift that? Any perspectives on that that you'd like to share? From a faith perspective, to use kind of faith, uh, faith language, I, I mean, I think it's a lot of, about the, um, um, the idolatrous fidelity to the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to have something that's a part of the Constitution. It's another thing to take it so out of context and to so isolate it and to so um, make it absolute when there are no other amendments that are looked at in that kind of concrete way, and to have it woven into the, 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 the weave and woof of, of our um, kind of national mythos of the frontier and of tape and all the, the baggage that's associated with that. I mean, that's where I think the real problem is. Most, if not all other countries, understand that handguns, that, that weapons are, are tools, are, are used for defense or for other things, but it only, it really only seems in this country that it is a part of kind of a, to use a, word, uh, a phrase that's used often, toxic ma masculinity. It's a part of the pride of what it is to be an American, that somehow it makes you more patriotic and more reflective of national values to, to own multiple guns and to have them at the ready. Uh, and I think it, it does 
bleed over into a kind of, quite frankly, a kind of idolatry, a modern contemporary civic idolatry. I, I agree with every bit of that. And I would say, you know, your question about, uh, I think also the prevalence and access has everything to do with it. Uh, I would say culture and people have not changed that much. It's just that mm -hmm. when you put this tool uh, and the way to act out and the way to, um, you know, respond to your anger, uh, we're going to inevitably have this problem. That's the inevitability you're talking about, I would say, is in this, is us not coming to grips with the fact that having that ease of access uh, is a recipe for these problems that we see and all of these results. You had written, I think, uh, one of the pieces that I saw, a parable of the of infants in the river, and you related it to this issue. Could you recount that for us? Well, you kind of said it just a, a little bit about the way your approach to it, but uh, I mean, it's a, not a parable I wrote. It's one that I've heard and many people have uh, about babies uh, going by you on the river and people jumping in to save them, jumping in to save them, and finally one person decides I'm going to leave and go up the river and they say, why are you leaving? We're here jumping in saving babies and say, I'm going to go find out why there are so many babies in the river. And uh, I've used that just because I think that's the problem here. We, we are not looking at what's happening up the river. We just see the incident in front of us every time and, uh, and I think that's how we're going to solve this, you know, is, is going up the river, some of us, uh, to find out what the problems are. And each of you are going, if you will, up the river to try to find some solutions. And the limits of time being such, we're going to tackle that in the next episode. So I thank you so much for sharing of your wisdom and experience, uh, painful as it is. And we hope that you'll join us in the next episode, uh, an epidemic of denial. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next week. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.